السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, for a few weeks now we have been studying the hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha رضي الله عنها from Sahih al-Bukhari about the hijrah the emigration of the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. I continue from where I left off last week. The point of the hadith, where we stopped, was when the Prophet ﷺ suddenly, contrary to his habits and custom, appeared in the middle of the day and Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha sister most likely Asma radiyallahu anha alerted the family to the sudden and unexpected and uncustomary arrival of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at that hour it was obviously a matter of emergency. Abu Bakr radiallahu said only a great thing must have brought him at this hour of the day. When the Prophet sallallahu entered, he requested Abu Bakr radiallahu to remove whoever was in the house. He said, O Messenger of Allah, it is only your family. So the Prophet sallallahu accepted that. And then he informed him of his plans to emigrate to Medina. The Prophet ﷺ had already made that intention some time ago. He was waiting for Allah's permission to leave. And Abu Bakr then requested his company. The Prophet ﷺ agreed. And Abu Bakr had prepared the had prepared camels which according to some reports he had actually purchased, these were Bahraini camels from the east of Arabia. And he purchased them, he had kept them and prepared them. And so he said to the Prophet wasallam, here are these two camels, choose any one of them. Rasulullah wasallam insisted on purchasing them and he even paid, according to some reports, 800 dirhams for his camel. After the, and then the family made other preparations such as food, etc. And there were two leather bags 
One of them contained water and the other contained meat that had been cooked by the family for this journey. And it was all very quick and sudden. So in that rush, there was nothing to seal the two bags. So Asma radiallahu anha, she took material from her sash and split it, ripped it into two, two pieces, two rags. And with one of them, she tied the water gourd and with the other, she tied the bag containing food and provisions. And this is why she is known as the lady of the two sashes. This is where we stopped. Now what happened after that is, this is one narration by Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. And obviously she's relating it from her personal perspective as to what was her recollection, what had happened with her in her house, with her family. So not all of the details of the hijrah will be contained in this one narration. So here she continues with the words, and this is where we shall begin today. قالت, she says, ثُمَّ لَحِقَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ وَأَبُو بَكْرٍ بِغَارٍ فِي جَبَلِ ثَوْرٍ then the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr both met up or took refuge in Bigarin in a cave fi Jabal Thawr on Mount Thawr. And this is where the hadith continues, but obviously other things happened in between. And I'll fill in the gaps before we continue. After the Prophet ﷺ had gone to the house of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and made all these final preparations, we learn from other narrations that he returned home. And he also made preparations for his departure there. One of them included instructing Ali radiyallahu to do two things. One, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's intention was to leave that night. And before doing so, he gave Ali radiyallahu instructions to sleep in his bed, wearing his green cloak and mantle, which he would normally wear while sleeping. And the reason for this is that things were picking up all over the city. Quraysh, realizing that so many people had left, were now very desperate to do something about the Prophet ﷺ. Their discussions about him and what to do with him had continued uninterrupted for years. But now they were getting more and more desperate. And many suggestions had been made over the recent years as to what to do with the Prophet ﷺ. And this is referenced in the Holy Qur'an when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Anfar, وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ And remember when those who disbelieved were plotting against you, that they may imprison you, or slay you, or drive you from the city. 
And they were plotting. And Allah was planning. And Allah is the best of planners. So over the years, their discussions had included every one of these suggestions. To physically harm the Prophet ﷺ, to banish him from the city, or to imprison him in some way. But hitherto, they had never come up with something concrete about killing the Prophet ﷺ, although they had discussed it and this is something they wanted to do. On this occasion, it's been narrated that the chieftains of the Quraysh gathered in their chamber, in their council house, Darun Nadwa. And there, this was their forum, this was their council house. And it was actually a house owned by one of the chieftains of the Quraysh, Qusay ibn Kilab, one of the forefathers of the Prophet ﷺ. He was the one who was actually responsible. I've mentioned some time ago that the Quraysh, originally they weren't inhabitants, well, the Quraysh, originally they weren't inhabitants of in the recent past of the city of Mecca. They were outside because although they had been their ancestors been there previously, they were driven out. And Khuzar were the main rulers in Makkah al-Mukarramah. Qusay ibn Kilab, one of the descendants of Quraysh, he is the one who actually gathered his tribesmen from around the city of Makkah and galvanized them to into attacking Makkah and reclaiming the lost honor and heritage and kingdom of their forefathers. So now the roles were reversed. Usay ibn Kilab was successful in attacking Mecca along with the rest of the Quraysh tribes, and, or not the tribes, but the clans of the Quraysh. And he then became the undisputed ruler of Mecca al-Mukarramah, Usay ibn Kilab. And those who were closest to him, they occupied the center of the city. And those who were of distant clans from his personal clan, of the Quraysh, they occupied the outskirts of the city. This is why the Quraysh were known as the Quraysh of the interior and the exterior. The Quraysh of the interior were the ones who occupied the most important and prestigious areas of Mecca. And the rest of the Quraysh were the Quraysh of the outskirts. So Qusay ibn Kilab was regarded as the first ruler and king per se, although he wasn't crowned as king, of Mecca. And his house, in his honour and memory, became the council chamber for and the forum for the Quraysh, Qusay ibn Kilab. And he was one of the forefathers, so the Prophet ﷺ, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib, Ibn Hashim, Ibn Abdi Manaf, Ibn Qusay ibn Kilab. So he was the, the Prophet Sallallahu father, Abdullah, his father, Abdul Muttalib, his father, Hashim, his father, Abdul Manaf, and Abdul Manaf's father was Qusay. So Qusay's house was the Darul Nadwa, their prestigious council chamber and forum where they would gather uh, as chieftains and leaders. So they gathered there again for an extraordinary meeting, and the subject of discussion was putting an end 
to the very life of the Prophet Now in their heated discussions, they were still unsure as to how to proceed. And then Abu Jahl, he, the most, one of the bitterest enemies of the Messenger he came up with a novel suggestion. And the, as I've mentioned many times before, the, re, the thing that prevented them was this tribal custom and tradition and this balance of power. There was no central law or authority, but their fear was that if anyone attacked the Prophet ﷺ, his clan, Banu Hashim, or members of his clan would retaliate, although even they weren't too sure of that, because now Banu Hashim was under the leadership of Abu Lahab who again was a bitter enemy of the Messenger So, Abu Jahl came up with a novel suggestion, which is that we do not need to fear any retaliation. All of the clans of the Quraysh are more or less opposed to Muhammad and his message. So, why don't we do this? We choose young warriors from every clan, from the Banu Sahm, Banu Jumah, the Banu Adi, the Banu Abd Shams, the Banu Nawfal. These were all different clans of the Quraysh. Not even of the non-Quraysh, these were the actual Quraysh. And we will take young warriors from every one of these clans. And these young warriors will collectively gather and attack Muhammad. And at the time of attacking him, all of them will spear him. And all of them will ensure that his blade thrusts the body of Muhammad. So that the blood of Muhammad and its responsibility will be shared and divided amongst all the clans of the Quraysh. And then, Banu Hashim, even in their entirety, and even if they wish in their entirety to retaliate, they will not be able to withstand or resist or to stand up to or to demand blood and retaliation from all of the clans of the Quraysh. And therefore they will settle for the alternative, which is blood money. And the Quraysh, at that time, they had a fixed amount as well for blood money, which is a hundred camels. So... In, in Arabic, this is known as diya or aql. And for those of you who are familiar with Arabic, all names, all words have a connection. And the word aql, which, which means, means diya, i.e. compensation. So how does the word aql come about to mean compensation? It's... Their deer, their compensation was a hundred camels per soul. So per person, a hundred camels. And if anyone was killed, then they would confer between themselves, and either they would retaliate by blood, so a soul for a soul, a life for a life, or they would settle for blood money, and blood money would be a hundred camels. And if they agreed on paying the deer or the the compensation, then they would deliver the camels. So when they would deliver the camels, they would tie them up. 
And tying up is known as aqla ya'qilu aqlan, to tie up. So when they would tie up the camels, they would then come and deliver the message that your camels for compensation and for the blood money have been delivered and how they've been delivered, we've tied them up for you. It's like someone who has to deliver a car. So they'll come in and say, I've parked the car. So parking means that I've delivered the car. So for the Arabs, aql meaning tying up the camel meant we've delivered the camels. So eventually the Arabs began using the word aql meaning to tie up to mean deer and compensation. In any case, so they used to call it deer and aql. So the price of one person was a hundred camels. This is important. The reason I'm mentioning this is later we'll learn about Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Ja'shum, the Arab Bedouin, well, the Arab, who acted as a bounty hunter. And he pursued the Prophet Abu Bakr as-Siddiq in order to claim their bounty. And the Quraysh had made an announcement and promised 200 camels. And the reason for 200 camels, 100 for the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and 100 for the life of Abu Bakr radiyallahu so this was their amount, a hundred camels. So Abu Jahl said, if they, they have only one of two choices, either they retaliate or they accept blood money in return for the death of Muhammad. And they will not be able to resist or to stand up to all of the clans of the Quraysh. So everyone agreed. And there the plan was set and it was agreed upon. The warriors were chosen and there chosen time for this operation was again the same night. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was informed. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam began his own preparations. His although he had to travel in emergency, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam planned beautifully. He planned almost everything, including for contingencies. So he told Ali radiyallahu anhu to sleep in his bed that night as he himself would slip out. And he told him to wear his green mantle and cloak that he would normally wear while sleeping. He even left instructions with Ali radiyallahu that after I depart, then you remain in Mecca for three more days. Don't do hijrah yet, but remain in Mecca for three days. And in those three days... All the good, all the trusts, all the items of trust that I have, that people have deposited with me for safekeeping and for looking after and guarding, I want you to return everyone's property and items of trust to them. Subhanallah, as we learned last week, at such a time of emergency, he comes in a rush. He even requests Abu Bakr to take out members of his own family from the room so that he doesn't have to speak in front of them and share his secret plan with them. Even when his life is under threat and he has to flee from his home city, his place of birth, even on that occasion, he insisted that his best friend Abu Bakr does not give him his camel Without payment. He insisted on payment. And here again, despite the threat to his life, 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam insisted that Ali radiyallahu anhu at a danger to himself remain behind in Mecca for three days and repay and return everyone their items of trust. Amana, trustworthiness. Huququl ibad, huququl khalq. The rights of the creation of Allah as well as the rights of the creator. These are fundamentals in religion. Islam isn't just about fulfilling the rights of Allah, the Creator. Islam is also about fulfilling the rights of the creation. The longest verse in the entire Qur'an in Surah Al-Baqarah is not about prayer, pilgrimage, fasting or charity. Zakah. It's not about Jannah or Jahannam. It's not about the Life of the second life, the life after death, the hereafter. Nor is it about the past, stories of the prophets and their nations. The longest verse of the Qur'an is about ensuring that you make receipts when you lend and when you borrow, when you buy and sell. So that even though it's not an obligation, simply so that this thwarts and avoids any misunderstanding and any potential conflicts and disputes. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, idha tadayantum bidaynin ila ajalin musamman faktubu, wal yaktub baynakum katibun bil'adl, wala ya'ba katibun an yaktuba kama allamahullahu fal yaktub. Oh believers, when you trade, when you lend to each other, when you grant each other a loan or credit for a fixed period, then register this, write this down. And the writer, the scribe should register this justly. And since the Arabs on the main parts were an unlettered people, they, had, they wouldn't keep records. In fact, many of them didn't know how to read or write. So there were only a few select scribes and people who could write. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them that even though you can't write yourselves, find a scribe and request him to write for you. And the scribe, وَلَا يَأْبَ كَاتِبٌ أَنْ يَكْتُبَ كَمَا عَلَّمَهُ اللَّهُ فَلْيَكْتُبُ That the scribe should not refuse to do the service. Rather, he should write for them just as Allah has taught him how to write. He should employ his skill. He should employ his skill in, for good use. So the longest verse of the Qur'an is about lending, borrowing, and registering and recording these loans and making receipts of this, of the, of this trade and of these transactions. Even though the ulama agree that it's not actually an obligation. So if you were to lend and borrow without making a receipt, you don't commit a sin. So the longest verse of the Qur'an is about making receipts, even though it's not obligatory. It shows the importance of honesty, of avoiding conflict, avoiding misunderstanding, the significance and the obligation of fulfilling the rights of Allah's creation. This is a comprehensive approach to religion.
fulfill the rights of the Khaliq, the Creator, and the Khalq, the creation. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam demonstrated that beautifully. And it was obvious that most of the items of trust that were deposited with him belonged to the non-Muslims of Mecca. And yet Rasulullah alayhi salatu was so conscientious, was so diligent in ensuring that their items of trust were returned to them, even though his own life was under threat. Allahu Akbar. So Ali radiyallahu was given these two instructions. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam then slipped away at night from his house. And then he visited Abu Bakr radiyallahu And from there Abu Bakr radiyallahu and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam left from the rear of the house of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiyallahu to make their way towards the towards Mount Thaw, which was to the south of Mecca. And they then made their way up to the cave. I will say a bit more about this in a moment. But what happened in Mecca after them? After nightfall, the Quraysh, the young warriors, arrived and they surrounded the house of the Prophet. There they waited for him. And the chieftains of the Quraysh waited in great eagerness and anticipation to hear of the death, of the success of the operation and the death of the Prophet In the morning, or when I say morning, is at the time of just before dawn, they rushed into the house. Prior to that, they had waited for him to come out. They then rushed into the house. And before that, they were waiting for him to come out. Because the Quraysh, despite everything, they did not want to. As part of their chivalry and their honour of fighting and tradition, they had chivalrous ideas which ensured that women would not be harmed. Homes would not be entered. They would not enter a home. So even with Rasulullah wasallam, they did not enter the house. They waited for him to come out. But he never came out. According to some reports, some of the chieftains of the Quraysh came late and said, you're still waiting. Said, Muhammad hasn't come out. Then in the morning they, they decided to, I, at dawn, to barge into the house and they found Ali radiallahu anh sleeping. They sadly took Ali radiallahu and dragged him to al-Masjid al-Haram, physically harmed him, beat him up and beat him repeatedly in order to extract information from him about the whereabouts of the of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ali radiyallahu anh simply said he didn't know, and it's true, he didn't know where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was exactly and where he was heading, although he knew that he was leaving the city. Abu Jahl then even went to the house of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anh and in his rage, he knew no bounds. And he himself acted contrary to the traditions and the customs of the Quraysh and the Arabs. And Asma radiallahu anha opened the door and he asked, Where is your father? Where is Muhammad? When she replied in the negative, as she did not know, he, the Khabith, actually slapped her. And then cursed her and left. 
رسول الله عليه الصلاة والسلام أبو بكر رضي الله عنه were already out of the city and quite possibly by this time had reached the cave. Another thing that happened was Asma رضي الله عنها relates herself that even though her father was wealthy and he was a trader, a businessman, Abu Bakr رضي الله عنه had devoted his life and his wealth to the service of Allah and his messenger Even before this, the most famous emancipator and manumitter of slaves was Abu Bakr Siddiq He is the one who purchased Bilal ibn Rabah from Umayyad ibn Khalaf who was uh, an extremely wealthy trader. Umayyad ibn Khalaf wasn't just one of the chieftains of the Quraysh. He was immensely wealthy. One of the wealthiest in the whole of Mecca and its region. And he, along with that, he was one of the chieftains of Banu Jumah, a clan of the Quraysh. So when he purchased Bilal ibn Rabah from Umayyad ibn Khalaf, he paid a huge amount, according to some narrations, 40 uqiyah of gold. And Bilal ibn Rabah radiyallahu anh became the, uh, when he was purchased by Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anh, immediately thereafter he announced that I have released and emancipated Bilal ibn Rabah. So he became his mawla, his free, freeman, his freedman. Another one, whom he had purchased and then emancipated was Amir ibn Fuhayra, again famously known as Mawla Abi Bakr radiyallahu anhu. Amir ibn Fuhayra radiyallahu anhu was another freed slave and he played an important part in the hijrah because he accompanied the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu as we will learn from the hadith. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu had devoted his wealth to the service of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Muslims, even purchasing slaves at exorbitant prices and then immediately releasing them and freeing them. And much of his wealth disappeared. So even though before Islam he was very wealthy, not as wealthy as the other chieftains, but he was moderately wealthy, by the time he left Makkah al-Mukarramah at the time of the Hijrah, he only had five or six thousand dirhams left. And prior to this, he had considerable wealth. But all of it was spent in the way of Allah. And the final five or six thousand dirhams that he had left, he didn't leave them with his family. He actually took them with him. On the route to Hijrah. So Asma radiallahu anha, his eldest daughter, she relates that when my father left with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he had five or six thousand. So the wording of five or six thousand is actually that of Asma radiallahu anha. He had five or six thousand dirhams left in his possession. And he took all of them. So after he departed and word had spread in Mecca, that Abu Bakr is missing. Our grandfather, Abu Quhafa, he came. And by that time he had become blind. 
And he was still not a Muslim. Although he was sympathetic, he hadn't yet embraced Islam. So he came to his son's house and addressing Aisha radiallahu anha and Asma radiallahu anha, he said, I have learned that your father has departed. Has he left anything for you, for your maintenance and for your upkeep? So Asma radiallahu anha says, by Allah there was nothing in the house, I no wealth. But because he was blind, in order to pacify him and to convince him and to calm him, I took a few pebbles and I put them in the alcove, in the wall. And then I covered them with a piece of cloth. Then I guided him and took his hand and allow his hand, allowed his hand to pass over the cloth with the pebbles beneath. And I said, Father, grand, Grandfather, do not worry. Our father has left sufficient wealth for us. Then Abu Quhafa said, In that case, all is well. He has done good. And then he left. Asma radiallahu anha continues, By Allah, there was not a dirham in the house. But I only said so in order to pacify my grandfather and to put him at ease. And this sacrifice was reflected throughout the life of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu This is why in Surah Al-Layl, in the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl, mentioned that there Allah mentions, وَسَيُجَنَّبُهَا الْأَتْقَ الَّذِي يُؤْتِي مَا لَهُ يَتَزَكَّى وَمَا لِأَحَدٍ عِنْدَهُ مِنْ نِعْمَةٍ تُجْزَى إِلَّا ابْتِغَاءَ وَجْهَ رَبِّهِ الْأَعْلَى وَلَسَوْفَ يَرْضَى That he, the most cautious and the most fearing of Allah, he shall be protected from the fire of Jahannam. He who gives his wealth so that he may be purified. Even though he has no favor to return to anyone, he only does so to seek the countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Almighty, the Lofty. وَلَسَوْفَ يَرْضَى And Allah will soon be pleased with him. Now, according to many, although the words are general, without doubt, throughout history, and there are a number of narrations to this effect, the ulama have always believed that chief amongst the people to whom this ver- these verses are applicable is none other than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu He His whole life was spent in the service of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa even his wealth, his soul, his wealth. This is why towards the end, before the Prophet ﷺ departed from this world, he said that of all the people, the kindest to me in his family and in his wealth is Abu Bakr. The kindest to me of all the people is Abu Bakr. And the Prophet ﷺ made special dispensations for him. He even insisted that all the doors and the windows that lead into the masjid should be closed. And the meaning of windows is not as we imagine. Khawkha, uh, the word used in the hadith, refers to these small doors, which aren't full doors, but neither are they, neither are they windows. So they like opening covered by a small door. So some of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum whose homes were adjacent to the masjid, they had these small entries or entrances that were closed by doors, but they would lead straight into the masjid. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, 
all doors and all entrances to the masjid are to be shut from the homes. If anyone wants to come into the masjid, they must go out to the front of their houses and walk around and then come into the masjid from the main entrance. No one should enter the masjid directly from their homes except two people, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and illa khawkhatu Abi Bakr, except for the doorway of Abu Bakr. Only Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam and Abu Bakr radiyallahu an had that permission and honor to enter into the masjid directly from their home. Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam regarded him in everything. And Imam Tirmidhi and others relate that once the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasalam announced that people should donate and contribute in the way of Allah. Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu says that that day I made an intention. That I will bring out this day, if any day I will outdo and surpass and rival Abu Bakr, then it will be this day. So I brought half of my wealth and I said to the Prophet wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, here is my contribution. Prophet wasallam said, what have you left for your family? He said, oh Allah's messenger, I have left half of my wealth for my family. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu came with a great amount of wealth. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Oh Abu Bakr, what have you left for your family? He said, Oh, oh Messenger of Allah, I have left Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for my family. He brought all of his wealth. Umar radiallahu anhu says, by Allah, I knew that by Allah I would never be able to outdo Abu Bakr. And indeed, who could? Compete with Abu Bakr radiallahu So he had five or six thousand dirhams which he entered from the house and took along with him on this journey. And in this way, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu departed from Mecca and they secretly at night made their way in the direction of Jabal al-Thawr, Mount Thawr, which was to the south of Mecca. And this was part of the plan in order to avoid detection and being pursued, Rasulullah did not depart from the north of Mecca, which was a standard route towards um, Medina, Yathrib as it was known at the time. Rather, he went in the opposite direction. And they made their way towards Mount Thawr, which is a few miles from Mecca, cent- central Mecca, to the south. And they walked, they went, they went walking, no mounts, no camels or horses. And walking at night on that rocky terrain, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's feet became chapped and sore. So, and then when they arrived at Mount Thawr, on the way there, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu relates himself. Now what happened is, he and the Prophet ﷺ would be walking. And Abu Bakr as-Siddiq would dart to the right, and then to the left, and then to the front, and then to the rear. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Oh Abu Bakr, what are you doing? He said, Ya Rasulullah, when I am walking behind you, I fear that the search party may reach us from in front, so I come to the front. When I'm at the front, 
I fear that they may reach us from the rear, so I dart to the rear. When I am to the right, I fear they may come to the left, so I dart to the left. So in this way, I dart from one spot to the other for fear that the search party may reach us from that direction. So the Prophet ﷺ, so Abu, he said to him, So Abu Bakr, that means that if any danger befalls us, you wish to take and face the danger yourself before me? So the Abu Bakr said, Yes, O Messenger of Allah. When they reached, when they made their way, at some stage, the Prophet ﷺ, when his feet became sore and chapped, Abu Bakr actually carried the Prophet ﷺ for part of the way. And in this way they climbed Mount Thor. Before they reached the cave, when they reached their chosen cave, Abu Bakr said to him, O Messenger of Allah, wait here until I go into the cave and I ensure that there is no danger, that there is no harm. And Abu Bakr entered the cave, cleaned it out, ensured that no harm would befall the Prophet ﷺ in any way. And then he requested the Prophet ﷺ to enter. And there they began spending their time waiting for their next move. So this is where Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says in the hadith, ثُمَّ لَحِقَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ وَأَبُوْ بَكْرٍ بِغَارٍ فِي جَبَلِ ثَوْرٍ Then Allah's Messenger صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمُ and Abu Bakr, they took refuge in a cave in Mount Thawr. فَكَمَنَا فِيهِ ثَلَاثَ لَيَالٍ So they hid therein for three nights. Three whole nights they remained in that cave. يَبِيتُ عِنْدَهُمَا عَبْدُ اللَّهِ بْنُ أَبِي بَكْرِ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ بْنُ أَبِي بَكْرِ would spend the night with them. وَهُوَ غُلَامٌ شَابٌ ثَقِفٌ لَقِمٌ And he was a young, intelligent, sharp man. Who was Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr? Her brother. I mentioned at the very beginning that Abu Bakr Siddiq radiyallahu anh had a number of children. And of his sons were Abdul Rahman and Abdullah. So Abdullah was the one who was tasked with this responsibility of visiting them each night and returning to Mecca in a manner that is described in the hadith. So Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr would spend the night with them. And he was a young, intelligent, sharp man. فَيُدْلِجُ مِنْ عِنْدِهِمَا بِسَحْرِ So he would depart from them at dawn. فَيُسْبِحُ مَعَ قُرَيْشٍ بِمَكَّةِ كَبَائِتْ Then he would arrive in the morning, or spend the morning with the Quraysh in Mecca. كَبَائِتْ As one who had spent the night in Mecca. فَلَا يَسْمَعُ أَمْرًا يُكْتَدَانِ بِهِ So he would not hear of anything with which Allah's Messenger and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were being plotted against. إِلَّا وَعَاهُ Except that he would memorize it, preserve it. حَتَّى يَأْتِيَهُمَا بِخَبَرٍ 
until he would come to them with the news and information of this. When darkness would become dense. According to some reports, they aren't as authentic as the other narrations, and that's why I didn't mention it earlier on. But it's mentioned that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq before he entered the cave, I did say in general, without detail, that he entered the cave and he cleaned it out. According to some reports, but they aren't as authentic as the others, he entered the cave and he blocked some of the holes with rags. And then he bid the Prophet ﷺ enter. When the Prophet ﷺ entered, and later he fell asleep, there was one hole which wasn't yet blocked. So Abu Bakr put his foot or toe in that small hole. And there he was bitten by a snake. Yet, out of compassion for the Prophet ﷺ, and in order not to disturb his sleep, he kept his foot there and withstood the pain and did not even stir. And despite being a grown-up man, he was 51 years old. And the Prophet ﷺ was 53 years old at the time of the Hijrah. Despite being a 51-year-old man, he wept in pain. And he did not stir, but his tears fell on Rasulullah ﷺ, who was asleep in his lap. Then the Prophet ﷺ blew on him, and the pain dissipated and disappeared. However, an interesting twist to this story is I mentioned a few weeks ago that those who follow the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ voluntarily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes them to tread in the footsteps of the Messenger وسلم, even in involuntary matters. And there was no better example of this than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq He, His character merged with the character of the Prophet Do not misunderstand my words. What I mean is, his character was moulded in the character of the Messenger like for like, their likes, dislikes, preferences, opinions, inclinations, all of these matched. And I said this on the occasion when the chief of Qara, Ibn al-Dughunna, said to Abu Bakr radiyallahu an exactly what Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Innaka latasilu al-rahim. 
وتكسب المعدوم وتحمل الكل وتقري الضيف وتعين على نوائب الحق that verily you bond the ties of blood and you enrich the impoverished and you bear the burden of others and you entertain the guest and show immense hospitality and you assist others over the calamities of time and misfortunes these were the exact same words that Umm Muminin Khadija radiyallahu anha mentioned to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam their characters were very similar so here again allow me to elaborate on this the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the 7th year of hijrah when he marched towards khaybar there he was poisoned he was invited by a woman of the of khaybar who invited him and his companions for food Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam partook of the food and he ate a bit and he was poisoned so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him then but it's mentioned in the narrations that 3 years later before he was about to pass away in his final illness the cause of the final illness was the resurfacing of the effects of that poison in him from 3 years earlier and this is what ultimately led to his passing away it's mentioned about abu bakr as-siddiq radiyallahu anhu he was 2 years and a few months younger than the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he assumed khilafah he only lived for as long as the age difference between him and the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he reached the age of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he departed from this world too furthermore it's mentioned in the narrations that similar to the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam those who follow the prophets of allah in everything allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ensures that they follow in his footsteps and they adopt his sunnah even in involuntary things So it said that Abu Bakr radiyallahu an before his passing away the effects of the poison of that snake which bit him in the cave with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam the effects of that poison arose in him again and resurfaced and that's what ultimately led to his final illness and passing away like for like Allahu akbar He was devoted to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the sahaba radiyallahu anhum knew this no one could match Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu no one in fact speaking of this occasion of him traveling with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam at night the story that I mentioned that he would dart to and fro behind in front to the left to the right that particular story and that first night was even referenced by sayyidina umar ibn al-khattab radiyallahu anhu during his khilafah some people witnessing the character and the achievements 
and the imposing nature of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu some people suggested that he was better than Abu Bakr. So when he learned of this, he summoned those. And he became extremely angry. And in his booming, raging voice, he told them, that you say that I am better than Abu Bakr. Wallahi, one night of Abu Bakr is better than Umar and the whole family of Umar. And then he referenced this night. And he related the story that that one night in which he walked with the Prophet ﷺ, darting to the rear, to the front, to the right, to the left, guarding the Messenger ﷺ, and he said, by Allah, that one night is better than the whole family of Umar, and one of his days is better than Umar himself. So the one night was with the Prophet ﷺ, on his journey from Mecca, to the cave the first night. And the one day is after the Prophet ﷺ departed from this world. And the rebels rose throughout Arabia. Some, some of the tribes, they rose in rebellion. Umar and fearing the outcome, he approached Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and he relates this himself. He said, Oh Abu Bakr, Maybe you should approach them, approach them in a different way. I.e., Abu Bakr was of the view that the rebellion should be suppressed. Umar was of the view that the rebellion should not be suppressed, they should not be met with force of arms, but either by negotiation or some other method or by treaty and discussion, etc. So Abu Bakr, in fact, many were fearful, many were cautious as to what to do and how to approach this. When Umar approached Abu Bakr on behalf of others too, and said, oh Abu Bakr, maybe you should approach them in a different way, maybe you should discuss with them, negotiate with them, maybe you should try to appease them. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said to him, to Umar radiallahu anhu, جَبَّارٌ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ وَخَوَّارٌ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ Umar, were you a tyrant in the days of ignorance and a coward in the days of Islam? So Umar radiallahu anhu then was brought round to the opinion of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. And so were all the other sahaba radiallahu anhum. And this is why the historians and the ulama of Islam and the Sahaba radiallahu anhu used to say that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu saved the day with his firmness, with his farsightedness. So Umar radiallahu anhu recalls that day to this degree. And when he, when some claim that he was better than Abu Bakr, he said, by Allah. One night from the life of Abu Bakr is better than the whole family of Umar and Umar himself. And one day of the life of Abu Bakr is better than Umar himself. And the one night was with the Prophet ﷺ. And the other day, and the day was with, of that day when he had this conversation with Abu Bakr Siddiq. 
to continue, Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha says that Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr, her brother, would spend the night with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and return in the morning. And spend the morning in Mecca with the Quraysh as though he was someone who had spent the night there. And what would he do? He would listen. And what he would inquire, make inquiries, listen. Be part of conversations and discussions. And learn about what the people of Mecca were plotting and planning against the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He would preserve all of this and at night he would return to the cave and inform the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu an of this news. This was actually part of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's plan. And Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr radiyallahu an Anhuma was tasked with no other job. His job was merely to come empty-handed, no food, no baggage. To come empty-handed from Mecca to the cave at night, spend the night with them, and before dawn, leave Mecca and arrive in Mecca by morning, so that no one would miss his presence. And even if someone met him along the way, he would be carrying no baggage, no luggage, no provisions, nothing. He would be alone, just wandering. So, that was part of the plan. His job was merely to act as a scout and a, and a spy. And he would come and report everything to Rasulullah wasallam and his father. And that's the manner in which he would do it. And he would remain with... He would come to them when when the darkness would become dense. And the meaning of يختلط is when it would merge. And that's when it becomes dense. And Amir ibn Fuhayra would herd a flock Amir ibn Fuhayra, the freed slave of Abu Bakr would herd a flock of goats or sheep. Minhatam min ghanam, he would herd or he would look after Minhatam min ghanam, an animal, minha, I'll explain in a moment, min ghanam of the flock. What this sentence means is that this was the second person who was tasked with the responsibility. Amir ibn Fuhayra was the same freed slave of Abu Bakr that I mentioned earlier. His job was, since he was a herdsman, he was a shepherd, he would take a herd of goats and flock of sheep, etc. He would take them out of Mecca as normal. He would graze them. And then late at night, at nightfall, he would pass by, late evening, he would pass by the area where Abu Bakr and the Prophet were in a cave. And out of the flock, he would prepare one animal, a minha. And I explained this in Kitab al-Buyur and in Kitab al-Zakah, in the commentary of Bukhari. That minha is also known as maniha. And maniha or minha is an animal which is lent to someone else for the sole purpose of them benefiting from its milk. So, 
a wealthy person gives a goat or a sh- or sheep to a poor family and says he retains ownership. But he says you can use this animal and morning and evening or as many times of the day as need be. You can milk the animal and you can make use of the animal. But the animal still belongs to the owner. It's not given away. That's known as minhahu maniha. So... And then this came to be used for any animal that provides milk and nourishment, etc. So out of the flock, Amir ibn Fahira would prepare one animal and he would milk it. And he'd bring, or he'd bring that animal specifically to the cave and then they would milk it. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would drink of that milk. So she says, فَيُرِيحُهَا عَلَيْهِمَا So he would... Amir ibn Fahira would take these animals and pass them by them, i.e. the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr anhuma, when a short time had elapsed of the of the night, of the evening. So they would both spend the night with milk. Risl means milk. And Risl was, and she explains herself, the milk of their given animal. So all night long they would spend in the cave, having some food that was brought to them as well, by Amir ibn Fahira, as well as the milk. And the milk would be of two types. She says here, And it was the milk of their milked animal, وَرَضِيفِهِمَا And of their warmed milk. رَضِيف means milk, but a different type of milk. What they would do is that they would take pebbles or stones that were extremely hot because of the sunlight and the desert. And they would put those pebbles, because they're smooth and clean, they would put them inside the milk. And that's how they would boil the milk or heat it up. So this heated milk, or milk that was heated with pebbles or hot stones, was known as radif. So she says here they would have cold milk and heated milk. And that's how they would spend the night. Until Amir ibn Fuhayra would call out to them, i.e. the flocks, بغلس, late at night. All this means is that he would spend the nights with them, looking after them, serving the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr And then shortly before dawn, in the darkest hour of the night, since the darkest hour is normally before dawn, he would depart from them by calling out to his flock and taking them back to Makkah. He would do this each night from these three nights. وَاسْتَأْجَرَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ وَأَبُو بَكْرٍ رَجْلًا مِّنْ بَنِ الدِّيلِ And Allah's Messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم and Abu Bakr رضي الله عنه They had employed a man from بَنُ الدِّيلِ وَهُوَ مِنْ بَنِ عَبْدِ بْنِ عَدِي And he was of the clan of عبد بن عدي They had employed him as an expert guide and tracker. 
والخريت and she explains herself the meaning of خريت والخريت and خريت is الماهر بالهداية an expert's guide قد غمس حلفا he had dipped his hand in oath في آل العاص بن وائل السهمي with the family of العاص بن وائل السهمي وهو على دين كفار قريش فأمناه and he was on the religion of the disbelievers of the Quraysh فأمناه but they trusted him they meaning Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Abu Bakr they both trusted him فَدَفَعَ إِلَيْهِ رَاحِلَتَيْهِمَا So they both turned over their mounts and their camels to him. وَوَاعَدَاهُ غَارَ ثَوْرٍ And they agreed with him to meet at the cave of Thawr بعد ثلاث ليالٍ after three nights. بِرَاحِلَتَيْهِمَا with their camels سُبْحَ ثَلَاثٍ in the morning of the third. Meaning... In the morning of the end of the third night. وَانْطَلَقَ مَعْهُمَا عَامِرُ بْنُ Now here. The Arabic, I've given you a literal translation of the Arabic and it requires some explanation. Here, Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha discusses a third person who was part of the plan. So far, she's mentioned two. One was her brother Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr. His job was merely to learn of news, to spy on the Quraysh, and to report to the Prophet wasallam at night. He had no job to bring food or belongings or anything else. The second person in this plan was Amr ibn Fuhayra, the freed slave of Abu Bakr radiallahu His job wasn't to spy, his job was merely to bring provisions, food and drink. And the third person of this plan was a guide and an expert tracker from Bundil, the family of Deel, which itself was from the clan of Abd ibn Adi. And then she says that he was, she just describes and identifies this third person. He was of the family of Deel, from the clan of Abd ibn Adi, and he was a Khalif. She says, وَقَدْ غَمَسَ حِلْفًا فِي آلِ الْعَاصِ بْنَ وَائِلَ السَّحْمِ What that means is, that although he was from the clan of Abd ibn Adi, it was a very small clan, a weak clan. And what would smaller clans do in Mecca, well all over Arabia, they would align themselves with more powerful clans and tribes. And in this way, they would become allies, hulafa. So the clan of this guide and tracker was Abd ibn Adi. And he himself had joined them and set up an alliance with the family of Al-As ibn Wa'il. And Al-As ibn Wa'il, who was he? He was the father of Amr ibn Al-As radiyallahu And the grandfather of the famous narrator of hadith, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Al-As. So Al-As ibn Wa'il was one of the chieftains of the Quraysh. As-Sahmi, he was from Banu Sahm. 
These were the powerful clans, Banu Jumah, Safar ibn Umayyah was their leader. So, not Safar ibn Umayyah, his father Umayyah ibn Khalaf was their leader. Banu Sahm, the leader was Al-As ibn Wa'il. Banu Makhzum, the leader was the father of Khalaf. All of these Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, who then later became famous, their fathers were the chieftains of the Quraysh. So, Khalid ibn al-Walid radiyallahu and his brother al-Walid ibn al-Walid, their father was the chieftain of Banu Abdish, of Banu, of Banu Makhzum. And he was al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. The father of Ikrimah radiyallahu was Abu Jahl. And although he wasn't the overall leader, he was one of the leaders of Banu Makhzum, along with Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira. I won't go into the details, it's complicated. But then Safan ibn Umayyah, Safan ibn Umayyah, his father, Umayyad ibn Khalaf, he was the leader of Banu Jumah. Amr ibn al-As radiyallahu his father was the leader of Banu Sahm, al-As ibn Wa'il. So he's the one who's mentioned here. So she says that, quite simply, this non-Muslim tracker and guide was a halif and was an ally of Banu Sahm. And what does she mean by ghamasa hilfan? Ghamasa means dipped, hilfan means an oath. The Arabs, when they would secure an oath, the way they would do that is by taking a bowl. And in the bowl, they would have blood. The blood of an animal, a sacrificial animal. Or the bowl would be filled with dye. And everyone who agreed to taking part in that alliance or oath, they would all dip their fingers in that bowl and thereby smear themselves with the blood or with the dye. That means it became sealed, permanent. And that was a mark of their alliance by blood. So this then again later became a reference simply to meaning setting up an alliance. So this is why she says, قَدْ غَمَسَ حِلْفًا He had dipped Hilfan an oath, meaning his hand in, a, in blood, in order to set, set up an oath. She goes through this lengthy description to simply describe how here was a guide and a tracker, a non-Muslim from the Quraysh, who was actually an ally of one of the bitterest enemies of the Prophet wasallam, Al-As ibn Wa'il. And yet... Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu trusted him. So having trusted him, they tasked him with the responsibility of bringing their camels, which they had prepared, the two camels that Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu had prepared. They submitted them to him. And they didn't take them with them on the first night. And they agreed with him that he would come three days later to the cave of Thawr. That shows that the cave of Thawr wasn't just chosen at random on the night. It was pre-planned. Because three de- before that, before their departure, they had handed over their camels to uh, this Khirrit. His name was Abdullah ibn Uraiqit. So they gave their camels to Abdullah ibn Uraiqit and they agreed with him that three nights later, he would come and meet them there. When three nights were over, in the morning of the... F- at the end of the third night. And that's what he did. And Amir ibn Fuhayra travelled with them, with both of them, with Dalilu and the guide. So she says, at the end of the third night, in the morning, 
this non-Muslim tracker, Abdullah ibn Urayqit, he arrived with the two camels, and thus this party set off from the cave. And who was in the party? Four people. Amir ibn, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Abu Bakr radiallahu his freed slave Amir ibn Fuhayra, Waddalil and the guide Abdullah ibn Urayqit, who was a non-Muslim. So this party of four set off from the cave, فَأَخَذَ بِهِمْ طَرِيقَ السَّوَاحِلِ So the guide took them by the route of the coasts. Sawahil is jum'af sahil, which means the coast, and it's plural. So he took them from the, by the route of the coasts. What this means is that Abdullah ibn Urayqit, this non-Muslim guide and tracker, he took the Prophet and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq and Amir ibn Fuhayra, the freed slave, he took them to the west from the cave. First of all, they had traveled south from Mecca to Mount Thawr. From there, Abdullah ibn Urayqit, the guide, took them to the west, all the way up towards the coast of the Red Sea. Not all the way, but in the direction of the Red Sea. And then running parallel to the coast, they traveled up north, bypassing Mecca to the west at some distance. And this was contrary to the normal route. And in this way, they carried on traveling up northwards towards Al-Madinat Al-Munawwarah. And here, this one section of the hadith ends. Inshallah, the next section we will continue. These three nights that were spent with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu are referred to in the Holy Qur'an. And in fact, his departure is also referred to. When the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa wished to leave Mecca, he was waiting for Allah's permission. And finally, Allah granted him permission. And that was actually by a verse of the Holy Qur'an. وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَدْخِلْ سُورَةُ الْإِسْرَاءِ وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَدْخِلْنِي مُدْخَلَ الصِّدْقِ وَأَخْرِجْنِي مُخْرَجَ الصِّدْقِ That, O oh, oh my Lord, remove me from, O oh, oh my Lord, enter me into a place of entry of truth. And remove me from a place of removal of truth. And the meaning of this is, O oh my Lord, enter me into a place of truth, i.e. Medina. And remove me from a place of truth, meaning Mecca. Both are places of truth. And Allah removes him from one place of truth to another place of truth. And that's what's being referred to in the verse of the Qur'an. وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَدْخِلْنِي مُدْخَلَ الصِّدْقٍ وَأَخْرِجْنِي مُخْرَجَ الصِّدْقٍ And then, the three nights that they spent in the cave. Again, Allah refers to that in Surah At-Tawbah. And it's actually a warning to the people of Medina at the time. That, إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ If you want a system... فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهِ Then indeed Allah has assisted him. And he will continue to assist him. That's the meaning. إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ If you will not assist him. فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهِ Then indeed Allah has assisted him. And the significance of this verse is, that before I actually explain the verse, imagine those three nights that they spent in this manner. The Quraysh 
sent out search parties. And they even climbed Mount Thawr. And Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu was fearful throughout. From the time he left Makkah al-Mukarramah, he was darting to and fro, he was fearful. When they even entered the cave, he was fearful. They were inside the cave, he was fearful. He did not fear for himself. Because as is shown at every step of the journey, he was willing for harm to befall him, for no harm to come to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he was very fearful for the safety of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When they were in the cave, the Quraysh, they sent out their search party. And they went out in all directions. And the Quraysh even climbed Mount Thawr. And they even came to the foot of the cave, the mouth of the cave. And in another narration, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu says, By Allah, we could see their feet. And if any one of them was to merely look down towards his feet, he would see the entrance of the cave and he would detect us. So I said to the Prophet wasallam, O Messenger of Allah, if any one of them looks down at us, he will detect us. And he was fearful. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to him, La tahzan, O Abu Bakr, do not grieve. Ma dhannuka bithnaini Allahu thalithuhuma. What do you think of two of whom Allah is a third? Ma dhannuka bithnaini Allahu thalithuhuma. What do you think of two, what do you think of two of whom Allah is a third? And about this occasion, there are a number of narrations, such as a tree growing in front of the cave, uh, mouth, uh, the mouth of the cave, about the eggs of a pigeon and its nest, and also the web spun by a spider. Now, the truth is that, apart from the story of the web, which I'll elaborate on in a moment, the other two narrations are merely historical narrations. They're not to be found in the books of Hadith. And their reliability has been questioned by uh, a number of the scholars. But the story of the web, that's actually related in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, from Abdullah ibn Abbas, and again, the authenticity of that report has been questioned because it's to do with the synod and one of the narrators, the chain and one of its narrators. But one could argue that it is supported by other narrations. But in any case, this is one narration to be found in the books of, in, in one of the more famous books of Hadith, and I'll relate it to you, which is that Abdullah ibn Abbas says that when the Quraysh arrived at the cave, they found that a spider has spun its web across the mouth of the cave. And this deterred them, because they actually said to themselves, if somebody had entered the cave, then we would not find this web here. And this, the, the spider would not spin its web. That's actually mentioned as a hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbar, but again, the reliability of the narration and the chain of narration has been questioned. But regardless, there's a reason for me mentioning this. 
the protection of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was wasn't so much by the web of a spider. Rather, it was through the angels. And that's because it's referenced in the Qur'an. By forces unseen, everything hung in the balance. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was fearful. The Muhajirun had reached Medina. The Mustadha'foon, the weakened ones, were left in Mecca. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam were at, alone to the south of Mecca in this cave. Everything hung in the balance. The Quraysh went out in huge search parties, determined to kill the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam as they had already attempted to do. And undoubtedly, if they had captured him, they would have done it. And he was there hiding in a small cave. And Allah subhanahu And yet, the whole future, history would never have been the same. There would have been no Islam. There would have been no future for that religion. There would have been nothing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes their position, their state in the cave in the following inimitable words. إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهُ إِذْ أَخْرَجَهُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا ثَانِيَ اثْنَيْنِ إِذْ هُمَا فِي الْغَارِ إِذْ يَقُولُ لِصَاحِبِهِ لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعْنَا فَأَنْزَلَ اللَّهُ سَكِينَتَهُ عَلَيْهِ وَأَيَّدَهُ بِجُنُودٍ لَمْ تَرَوْهَا وَجَعَلَ كَلِمَةَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا السُّفْلَى وَكَلِمَةُ اللَّهِ هِيَ الْعُلْيَا وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ If you do not assist him. This was at the time of Tabuk. If you do not assist him then verily Allah has already assisted him. When those who disbelieved removed him from the city, when he was a second of two, when they were both in the cave, when he was saying to his sahib, his companion, لا تحزن, do not grieve. إن الله معنا, verily Allah is with us. So Allah sent down upon him his tranquility, his serenity وَأَيَّدَهُ بِجُنُودٍ لَمْ تَرَوْهَا and he aided him and strengthened him with forces that you could not see and he made lowly and base the word of those who had disbelieved وَكَلِمَةُ اللَّهِ هِيَ الْعُلْيَا and the word of Allah it is that which is lofty and supreme and Allah is almighty all wise so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala assisted and protected the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam with divine, unseen forces, namely the angels. And this is why Allah sent down tranquility and serenity upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Abu Bakr radiallahu and felt that when he was reassured by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, la tahzan. Do not grieve, for indeed Allah is with us. He is the only companion mentioned in the entire Qur'an. Not by name, but by reference of suhbah and company. There is no one else. It's remarkable, the Qur'an is very different, it's unique. 
The Prophet ﷺ was an imposter. The Qur'an would be replete with references to himself and his family. But it isn't. It's remarkable that of all the contemporaries of the Prophet ﷺ, of all the people who lived during the time of the Messenger ﷺ, Muslim and non-Muslim, by name, only two people are referred to. One Muslim and one non-Muslim. The non-Muslim, Abu Lahab. And the Muslim, Zayd ibn Haritha and his adopted son. So apart from the Prophet himself, who is referred to as Ahmed and Muhammad, four times as Muhammad and once as Ahmed, apart from the Prophet none of his contemporaries, either in Mecca or Medina, is referenced by name except for Abu Lahab and Zayd ibn Haritha None of his children, none of his wives, none of his family, none of the companions. Only Zayd ibn Haritha And the only person who's referenced by, as being a companion and a sahib is Abu Bakr as-Siddiq When he said to his companion, do not grieve. I end with this, inshallah, we'll continue with the remainder of the hadith in the next lesson. May Allah enable us to understand and benefit from the words of Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.